Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. All right, once again, please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Today is part 4 in our summer series on biblical anthropology or the doctrine of man. And it's my final sermon in the series. Next week, Justin will be back at the helm, and I think he has four sermons that he's planning to preach to help round out the series. And so far, we've considered the dignity of man, the identity of man, and last Sunday, we focused on the purpose of man, and today, we're going to be focusing on the destiny of man. Now, the purpose of man and the destiny of man, they go together, so today's sermon is going to encompass aspects of both, but with an emphasis on the destiny of man. With regard to the purpose of man, we learned last week that man's vocational calling was to have dominion over the earth, to subdue it, and that this idea of having dominion and, having, um, and subduing the earth can be perhaps best summarized by the word culture. And so we looked at that word. And consequently, the divine mandate that is given in Genesis 1.28, that man is to fill and subdue and have dominion over the earth, that mandate is sometimes referred to as the cultural mandate. Now, mankind, and again, when I use the word man or mankind, hopefully we all understand at this point that I'm talking about both, both men and women equally. They're both equally made in the image of God. But mankind was to create culture and civilization as God's representative, prophet, priest, and king. But to what end? Where was Adam kind of taking humankind if he was to fulfill that cultural mandate? And so these are the questions that we're going to be addressing in today's sermon. Now, once more, I will remind you that my overall objective is that we'd have a better understanding and appreciation of what it means for man to bear the image of God. And we've been trying to work up towards a, a working definition of what it means to bear the image of God. And so uh, by the end of today's sermon, uh, we will have arrived at the working definition that we're after. So let's once again read our key text, Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. And then we'll explore the subject of man's destiny. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Destiny. The word destiny implies destination. And destination implies directionality. For one will not reach their destination if they're continually going in the wrong direction. Thus, in today's sermon, we're going to be considering both of these things, destiny and destination, and also direction or directionality. In terms of destiny, man's vocational calling to fill, subdue, and have dominion over the earth, it wasn't to go on indefinitely. There was an end goal in mind. There was a terminal point in which man would have completed and fulfilled his cultural mandate. 
he would have arrived at his destination. However, it would undoubtedly require ages and ages for man to, op- uh, to ultimately accomplish this task. Look again at the comprehensive language of the cultural mandate that's given in verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue the earth and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is sweeping language. The scope of this mandate is all-encompassing. As was mentioned last week, by himself, Adam couldn't possibly fulfill the command to subdue the entire earth, to have dominion over all of the fish of the sea and over all of the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In order to develop and transform the earth into a a global temple of worship as a prophet, priest, and king, Adam was going to need a lot of help. And he was going to need a lot of time. In order to fulfill his destiny, mankind, humankind under the headship of Adam, was to carry on the work of filling and forming the earth that God had begun in the creation week. We're told that in the beginning, the earth was formless and void or empty. It was formless and empty, and so it needed to be formed and filled. And over the six days of creation, that is exactly what God did. He systematically filled and formed the earth. He formed the dry ground and the seas, and he filled the earth with vegetation, plants and trees. He formed the sun, moon, and stars to fill the heavens. He formed the birds to fill the sky. He formed the fish and the sea creatures to fill the waters. He formed livestock and creeping things and beasts to fill the dry land. And then he formed the man and the woman to bear his image and have dominion over it all. In the six-day process of developing the earth, God had formed it and filled it, but not entirely. He put an image of himself on the earth, and he gave a mandate to this image bearer to continue that work of developing the earth. By being fruitful and multiplying, man would continue to fill it. And by subduing and taking dominion, man would continue to form it, or we could say transform it through his cultural activity. Thus, we see that in order to fulfill his destiny, man was to fully fill and form the entire earth. I think part of the reason that the Garden of Eden was situated at a point of elevation, perhaps even atop a mountain, was to impress upon Adam and Eve the broad scope of their calling, of how much effort and time would be needed to fill and form the entire earth. We can infer that the Garden of Eden was situated at a point of elevation from Genesis 2, verses 10 through 14, where we are informed that a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first river is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah. The name of the second river is the Gahan, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, in order for the origin of a river to divide so as to large, so as to to water large geographical areas in multiple directions, so around the whole land of Cush, around the whole land of Havilah, around the land east of Assyria, and so forth, the origin of that river 
it would need to be elevated. And you don't need a degree in physics to know that water runs down. And so personally, I believe that these four rivers maybe branched out into the general directions of north, south, east, and west in order to encourage mankind, as he begins to multiply, to, to branch out into the four corners of the earth. And in whatever direction he would migrate, there'd always be a, a water source there for him to, to live off of and to use to cultivate the land. At any rate, the origin of the river that gave rise to these four rivers would need to be elevated to a certain extent. Thus, the Garden of Eden was situated at a point of elevation. Ezekiel 28, verses 11 through 14, offers further evidence of this. In this passage, Ezekiel records God's lament over the destruction of Tyre. And in that lament, Ezekiel compares the king of Tyre to Adam and the kingdom of Tyre to the Garden of Eden. And Ezekiel writes the following. He says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. Note what Ezekiel says. You were in Eden, the garden of God, the holy mountain of God. So according to these verses, it would appear that the Garden of Eden was a holy mountain of God. And this should make sense when we realize that Eden was a temple and that both the, the temple that was constructed under Solomon and then the later temple that was reconstructed under Herod, both of these temples were situated on a mountain, Mount Moriah. And even the eschatological heavenly city of Jerusalem, whose temple is the Lord God and the Almighty and the Lamb, even that is associated with a mountain, Mount Zion. And so for these reasons, I think we can safely conclude that the Garden of Eden was elevated to some degree and was very likely located on a mountain or perhaps within a mountain range. Now, why do I bring this up? How is this significant to man's purpose in destiny? If the garden was, in fact, elevated, well, how would that serve to reinforce to Adam and Eve the broad scope of their calling, of how much time and effort would be needed to fill and form the entire earth. Well, think about it. When you go up an elevation, even slightly, your perspective changes. Now, I'm from Southern California, so I'm used to having mountains nearby. I've been up in elevation many times. For you Texans, it might be a little bit harder to understand the concept of elevation, because everything's flat here. But trust me when I say, when you go up in elevation, even slightly, it really changes your perspective. So being up higher in elevation, you're able to look much farther in multiple directions. There's often vistas and lookout points that allow for incredible panoramic views of the surrounding area. Now imagine Adam and Eve. They're on a walk in the garden. They've been commissioned by God to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the whole earth and to subdue the whole earth. And they suddenly come to a lookout point where an incredible panoramic view opens up before them of the earth. Would they not look to one another and say, wow, we've got a lot of work to do here. And whatever that view was, however high up they might have been, whatever that view was, it was still only a, a tiny fraction of the entire earth. 
And so from that vantage point, they would surely begin to see how much time and effort would be needed to fill and form the whole earth. To quote from Herman Bavinck once more, he says that man was given an assignment which would cost him centuries of effort to accomplish. He was pointed in a direction, and note that word, direction, directionality. He was pointed in a direction incalculably far away, which he had to take and which he had to pursue to the very end. The nature of man, the essence of his being, the image of God according to which he was created, it had to come to a constantly richer and fuller unfolding of its content by means of its striving towards its destination. Note that word, destination. He had to strive towards that destiny. The image of God, so to speak, had to be spread to the ends of the earth and had to be impressed on all the works of man's hands. Man had to cultivate the earth, we could say to fill it and form it or to transform it. Man had to cultivate the earth so that it would more and more become a revelation of God's attributes. As Bavinck points out, man was pointed in a direction incalculably far away. He was on a trajectory and it would take him centuries of effort to fulfill the mandate that he had been given. But this once again raises the question, to what end? If Adam and his progeny had been faithful to fulfill the cultural mandate, to fill and form the entire earth with God-glorifying culture and civilization, well, what would be waiting for them at the end? I think that the tree of life gives a clue in answering this question. Now, there are differing views on whether or not Adam and Eve ate from the tree of life prior to the fall, and we don't have time to get into the details of these differing views. It's true that in the Genesis narrative, the only tree in the Garden of, of Eden that God explicitly told Adam and Eve that they were forbidden to eat from was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But in my own personal view, I don't think that Adam and Eve ate from the tree of life prior to the fall. Genesis 3.22 seems to indicate this. In expelling man from Eden, God says, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat. And so the inference is that man had not yet eaten from the tree. I think that the tree of life was a symbol, just like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you recall back to the first sermon I preached, in talking about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I said that that tree was really a symbol of authority. It was the tree that would demonstrate whether or not man would be content to live in obedience to the word of God. And similarly, I think that the tree of life was a symbol, a symbol of confirmation. One of the reasons I think this is because of the way in which the tree of life is spoken of in the book of Revelation. In the final chapter of Revelation, we read that a river of life flows out from the throne of God through the middle of the city of the New Jerusalem, and that the tree of life is on either side of the river. When Justin covered this several weeks back, when we looked at that passage, he brought out the fact that the text would seem to indicate that there were groves of these trees on either side of the river. Now, in this new Jerusalem, who's going to be partaking of this fruit, the fruit from the tree of life? Well, verse 14 in Revelation 22, it tells us, blessed are those who wash their robes. So that would be us, those of us who have had our robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right, the right 
the legal authority, the conferred privilege to eat from the tree of life. And just a few verses later, in Revelation 22, verse 19, we read that if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share, his portion, in the tree of, uh, to eat of the tree of life and the holy city. And again, earlier in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 2.7, it says that to the one who conquers, I, and it's Christ speaking, to the one who conquers, I will grant, I will grant as a reward to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Thus, from these verses, we see that the fruit of the tree of life is given as a reward, a conferred privilege for our faithful and loving service to Christ. And in a similar way, I think that Adam was not to eat of the fruit of the tree of life until he had fulfilled his mission in service to God to fulfill that cultural mandate, to fill and form the entire earth, while always accurately reflecting and representing the righteousness of God. I think the fruit of the tree of life was meant to spur Adam on to complete his mission. Adam was in a probationary state. He was not in a confirmed state of righteousness. It was possible that his state could change. If he failed his mission by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, death would result, a curse. But if he completed his mission, he would be granted to eat from the tree of life, and a conferred glorified life would result, a blessing. He would no longer be in a probationary state. He would be confirmed in a state of righteousness, just like we will be confirmed in a state of righteousness in the new heavens and earth because we are joined to the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who faithfully fulfilled his mission. Had Adam successfully completed his mission, he would have received the crown of life, just like we will if we remain faithful to Christ, as we're told in Revelation 2, verse 10. Thus, I believe that the tree of life was a symbol of confirmation that pointed Adam to his ultimate destiny. However, as we know all too well, Adam failed his mission and plunged mankind into sin. How then has sin altered our purpose and destiny? And I think in order to properly answer this question, it's helpful if we understand the concept of structure and direction. Creational structure and direction. This concept of creational structure and direction is developed in a book, Creation Regained, by Albert Walters. And much of what I'm about to discuss comes from that helpful book. But because Adam's sin corrupted the whole of creation, it's very important that we recognize how this corruption is related to the originally good creation. This relation is crucial for us to understand our continued purpose and destiny in the wake of Adam's sin. And so the central point to make is this. Sin is not to be identified with creation. Sin is not to be identified with creation. Creation and sin remain distinct, however closely they may be intertwined in our experience. So for example, prostitution doesn't eliminate the goodness of human sexuality. Political tyranny doesn't wipe out the divinely ordained character of governing authority. The subjectivism of modern art, well, that doesn't obliterate le the legitimacy of art itself. In short, sin does not have the power to bring to nothing 
God's steadfast faithfulness to the works of his hands. Thus, while, sin's, sorry, while Adam's sin has introduced an entirely new dimension to the created order, nevertheless, our purpose and destiny has not been annihilated. Rather, it's been altered. So sin has not caused our purpose and destiny to be annihilated. Rather, it has caused it to be altered. Recall what I said at the beginning of this sermon. Destiny implies destination. And destination implies directionality. Sin has turned man in the wrong direction, away from his destiny. Or we could think of it this way. Sin has brought about a strong spiritual headwind that inhibits us from moving freely in the direction of our purpose and destiny. It's an antagonistic force. However, while the force of sin's headwind makes forward motion very difficult, it doesn't completely prevent us as Christians from making forward progress. Sin has simply imposed misdirection upon the structural order of the creation. Prior to the introduction of sin, the entire structure of the created order, it moved in one direction. It moved in the direction of obedience to God. It moved in the direction of magnifying God and glorifying God. But what exactly is meant by the terms structure and direction? Let's just quickly define these terms. Structure refers to the creational constitution or composition of any given thing. What makes it the thing or the entity that it is? Again, structure refers to the creational constitution or composition of any given thing. What makes it the thing or the entity that it is? And direction refers to the distortion or perversion of creation through the fall on the one hand and the redemption and restoration of creation in Christ on the other. And so anything in creation can be directed either toward or away from God. That is, it can be directed either in obedience or disobedience to his law. And this double directionality, it implies not simply, it applies not simply to us as human beings, but also to such cultural phenomena as technology and art, to such societal institutions as labor unions and schools and corporations, and to such human functions as emotionality, sexuality, and rationality. To the degree that these realities fail to live up to God's creational design for them, they're misdirected, they're abnormal, they're distorted. And to the degree that they still conform to God's creational design, they are in the grip of a countervailing force that curbs or counteracts the distortion that was otherwise brought on by sin. Direction, therefore, always involves two tendencies, either moving toward God or away from God. Now, with regard to unbelievers, their directionality is always against God. For those who are outside of Christ, there's no true resistance to that headwind of sin. In fact, they love to be swept up by its forces. They love to be blown about by every headwind of sinful doctrine. They prefer darkness to light because their works are evil. All of their cultural activity is directed towards self, and so it's done in disobedience to God, and thus by nature they're children of his wrath. They sow to the headwind of sin, and they reap the whirlwind of God's wrath. 
But for those of us who have been redeemed in Christ, we are given the ability, and more importantly, the will, to resist the headwind of sin. To give a different analogy, we are like salmon swimming against the sinful current of the world. We still feel the effects of the current of sin, but we no longer just go with its flow. Through the sanctifying power of the Spirit, we're now able and willing to swim upstream in obedience to God. We're still in the world, but we're not of the world. In the New Testament, the term world is frequently used in a negative sense, and I think recognizing this creational structure and direction helps us to understand those verses that speak of the world in these negative terms. For example, when John says, do not love the world or the things in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, I think what he's essentially referring to is that sinful directionality of the world. Likewise, when Paul says, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, what he's basically saying is in every area of life, train your mind to strive against the fierce headwind of sinful misdirection. Similarly, James says that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to keep oneself unstained from the world. In other words, make every effort to keep yourself from being swept up by the headwind of sin. When the term world is used in this negative way, it's referring to that sinful misdirection that's being imposed upon the originally good structural order of creation. And so recognizing this creational structure and direction is very important because it keeps us from seeing the world in terms of secular versus sacred. Any structure within the created order has the potential to be made sacred if we work as Christians to abolish this sinful misdirection that is being posed upon it. As we mentioned last week, compartmentalizing the world in terms of sacred versus secular is a very great error because, first of all, it implies that there's no worldliness in the church. And secondly, it implies that holiness is impossible within the realm of politics, for example. Sacred versus secular thinking, it defines what is secular not by its directionality, not by its obedience versus disobedience to the Lordship of Christ. Sacred versus secular thinking defines what is secular by the creational neighborhood it occupies. And this approach has led many Christians to uh, abandon the so-called secular realm to the trends and forces of humanistic secularism. Indeed, because of this sacred versus secular mentality, to a large degree, to a large degree, Christians really have only themselves to blame for the rapid secularization that has occurred in the West. If political and educational and artistic life, just to mention these three areas, if these are all branded as secular and therefore they're just considered to be off limits to Christian cultural activity, then is it surprising that the tide of humanism in our culture is not being stemmed? Brethren, it's imperative that we realize that the redemption that has been achieved by Christ is cosmic. It's cosmic in the sense that it is reorienting all of creation back to its intended direction, to the glory of God. And Christ has called us to take part in redeeming all of creation, to work to make all of the created order sacred. 
No structural component of creation is to be thought of as being secular and thus irredeemable. All right, having discussed the concept of creational structure and direction, let's now consider how salvation affects the directionality of the created structural order, and then we'll conclude with a few words of exhortation. It's quite striking that virtually all of the basic words that describe salvation in the Bible, they imply a turning back to an originally good state. A turning back in directionality to an originally good state. The word redemption is a good example. To redeem is to buy back. And the image that it often evokes is of someone who's been captured, a free person has been seized and is being held for ransom, and someone else pays the ransom on behalf of that captive and thus buys back their freedom. Redemption is meant to free a prisoner from bondage to give back the liberty that he or she once enjoyed. It's bringing that back. And it's similar with the word reconciliation. The prefix re, R-E, that prefix, indicates that something's going back to its original state. The directionality is turning back. With reconciliation, we might think of friends who've had a falling out, but they're eventually brought back into fellowship or friendship. Or of two uh, nations that have been allies, but then suddenly go at war against each other, but eventually are brought back into that former alliance. They're being reconciled, they're being brought back to something that was good. Yet another example is the word renewal, which literally means to make new again. What was once branded new, but has gotten worse for wear, is renovated and restored back to its former glory. All of these salvation words convey the idea of returning something back to an originally good state. In fact, the word salvation itself conveys this idea. Salvation implies a rescuing from danger and returning something back to a state of safety and security. In the Greek, the word for salvation was also sometimes used with regard to sickness and disease. In this sense, salvation is returning someone back to a, a state of good health. And we see the same idea with our English word salve, which is the root word for salvation. A salve is used for medicinal purposes to restore someone back to good health. Salvation is therefore restorative in nature. And all of the terms associated with salvation indicate this, a turning back to an originally good state. Salvation is all about redirecting sinful misdirection. And so fundamentally, this means that salvation, it doesn't really bring anything new to the table. At bottom, salvation is about redemption. It's about restoration, reconciliation, recreation, renewal. Salvation's not really a matter of adding something new to creation. It's a matter of bringing back the life and vitality to creation that was originally there. The only thing that salvation really adds to creation that was not already there is the remedy for sin. But even in this, the remedy is brought in solely for the purpose of recovering a sinless creation. Now, even though salvation doesn't bring more to creation, it certainly doesn't bring less. All of creation, all of creation is included in the scope of Christ's redemption. Through Christ, 
God determined to reconcile all things to himself. As we read in the first chapter of Colossians, which was our scriptural text for this morning, Christ is the image of the invisible God. He's the perfect image bearer. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. All things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Clearly, the scope of redemption is as great as the fall. Clearly, the scope of redemption is as great as the fall. It affects creation as a whole. The redemption of Christ is slowly but steadily moving creation toward the consummation of all things, to the day of his return in which all of sin's effects will be banished forever. By the power of his redemptive blood, Christ is progressively rebuking the headwind of sin. Just like he rebuked the winds and that, that tempest on the Sea of Galilee, he's rebuking the headwind of sin on the earth, gradually. Accordingly, wherever there is corruption of the good creation, Christ provides the possibility of restoration. If the whole of creation was affected by the fall in Adam, if the whole of creation was affected by the fall of Adam, then the whole of creation is also reclaimed in the second Adam, in Christ. Brethren, this is a massive, massive point that most Christians fail to, to see. Just as the fall of Adam resulted in the ruin of the whole earthly realm, it affected everything. So the atoning death of the second Adam results in the salvation of the whole earthly realm. Likewise, just as the first Adam's fall was aided and abetted by the subsequent disobedience of humankind, so the salvation of the whole world is manifested and promoted by the subsequent obedience of a new humankind, those of us who are now in Christ. The Adamic human race, those who are still in unbelief, the Adamic human race perverts the cosmos. The Christian human race renews it. The obvious implication is that the redeemed of Christ, us, God's people, we are called to promote renewal in every aspect of creation. If Christ is the reconciler of all things, and if we've been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation, as we're told by Paul in 2 Corinthians, then we have a redemptive task wherever our vocation places us in this world. We ought to see the Great Commission in this light. The Great Commission of Christ is almost like the cultural mandate 2.0. It both complements and reinforces the cultural mandate. In the cultural mandate, we're told to be fruitful and multiply. And in the Great Commission, we're likewise told to be fruitful and multiply. To disciple the nations and baptize those who are spiritually reborn as a result. By proclaiming the gospel to the nations, we're bringing about spiritual rebirth. We're being fruitful and multiplying spiritually. We're, we're being fruitful and multiplying God's people. Again, in the cultural mandate, we're told to subdue the earth. And in the Great Commission, we're similarly instructed to spiritually subdue the earth, to teach the nations to observe all that Christ has commanded. Indeed, in Mark's rendering of the Great Commission, we're told to proclaim the gospel to all creation, 
to proclaim it to all creation because there is need of gospel liberation everywhere and in every aspect of creation. Thus we are called in the entirety of our lives to witness to the kingdom of God. We're to make the good news that creation, sorry, we're to make known the good news that creation is being renewed according to the reign of Christ and that his kingly authority extends over the whole world. That Jesus rules over marriage and family, business and politics, art and athletics, leisure and scholarship, sex and technology, all of it. We're not to think that there's some invisible sacred versus secular dividing line that separates the structural order of creation. In the name of Christ, the sinful misdirection of the created order, it must be opposed everywhere. In the kitchen, in the bedroom, in courtrooms and corporate boardrooms, on the stage and on social media, in the classroom and in the workshop. Everywhere creation calls for the honoring of God's laws and norms. So don't miss this point. Don't miss this point. To conceive of either the fall or Christ's deliverance as encompassing less than the whole of creation is to compromise the biblical teaching of the radical nature of the fall and the cosmic scope of redemption. Our ultimate purpose in destiny is to serve Christ in renewing the entire created order until he returns to bring about the consummation of all things. Jesus did not enter into his own creation merely to save sinners from their sins. He came to save all of his creation from the effects of sin. To say that Jesus came simply to save sinners is a, is a gross understatement. I, I think sometimes we have too small a view of just how great our Savior is. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Not in the sense that he's saving every single man, woman, and child, but in the sense that he's restoring all of creation. He's reconciling all things in heaven and earth. What a Savior! What a Savior. To conclude my portion of this series, I'd like to leave you with a few words of exhortation. But before I do this, let me give you the complete working definition of what it means to be made in the image of God. This is my own, so you can take it or leave it. I think I have a slide. Yep. To be made in the image of God is to reflect the righteousness and the interpersonal love of the Trinity to our neighbor in accordance with our maleness or femaleness while worshipfully working to advance culture and the redemptive salvation of Christ as a representative prophet, priest, and king. I know it's lengthy. Once again, to be made in the image of God is to reflect the righteousness and the interpersonal love of the Trinity to our neighbor in accordance with our maleness or femaleness, while worshipfully working to advance culture and the redemptive salvation of Christ as a representative prophet, priest, and king. Now, I know that this is a lengthy and somewhat involved definition, but hopefully you can appreciate its relative comprehensiveness given all that we've covered over the last month. We've considered the dignity of man, the identity of man, the purpose of man, and the destiny of man. We've covered a lot of ground thus far in our brief survey of the biblical doctrine of man, and this leads me to my first word of exhortation. My first word of exhortation is this. Ponder and admire the superiority of the biblical doctrine of man. Ponder and admire 
the superiority of the biblical doctrine of man. Hopefully, the time that we've spent together has convinced you of the uniqueness and the superiority of biblical anthropology. No other anthropological view, whether it's religious in nature or philosophical in nature, no other biblical anthropological, sorry, no other anthropological view comes anywhere close to explaining the dignity, the identity, the purpose, and the destiny of man the way that the Bible does. No other anthropological view upholds and elevates the dignity of man to the degree that scripture does. No other view can solve man's identity crisis and provide man with that relational security and significance that he longs for. Only a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the God-man, can accomplish this. No other view so clearly defines man's purpose and gives man the directionality of his existence. Ponder and admire the superiority of the biblical doctrine of man. And for any who are here who are still unbelievers, not a Christian, I have to tell you, friend, that you will never find your dignity, your identity, your purpose, and your destiny looking anywhere else. Where else will you go? He alone has the words of eternal life. Apart from him, apart from Christ, your dignity is tarnished. Your identity remains in crisis. Your feelings of insecurity and insignificance will continue to haunt you. Your purpose will forever elude you. And your destiny will be to suffer eternal wrath from the one whose image you failed to represent. Come to Christ and be saved. Be restored. Be renewed. Be redeemed. Be recreated. Otherwise, when you die, you will be confirmed in a state of unrighteousness, and there will be hell to pay. Exhortation number two plant seeds and pull weeds. Plant seeds and pull weeds. Or the other way we could say it, be culture makers and culture takers. Now, I think this one is relatively straightforward, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it. Not only are we called to be transformers of the earth according to the cultural mandate of Genesis, but now, because of the misdirection of sin that we talked about, we are also called to be reformers of the earth according to the great commission of Christ. We're to be transformers and reformers. We're to plant seeds and pull weeds. We're to be culture makers and culture takers, taking back the culture wherever sin continues to impose itself. Until Christ returns, there's much work that remains for us to do. Therefore, my final exhortation, set your hand to the plow and plow in hope. Set your hand to the plow and plow in hope. Our purpose is to be cultural transformers and cultural reformers. So let us put our hands to the plow and never look back. Let us plant seeds and pull weeds in our marriages. Let us plant seeds and pull weeds in our children's hearts. Let us plant seeds and pull weeds in our local church community. Let us plant seeds and pull weeds in our vocational work. Let us plant seeds and pull weeds in our city, state, and nation. Let us not grow weary in our service to Christ. And let us not get discouraged when it seems like all of the cultural seeds that we're sowing seem to be falling on rocky ground. 
or that the enemy is just constantly devouring our efforts, or that for every weed that we pull, it just seems like a hundred more sprout up right away. Brethren, it may seem that our efforts are futile, but they're not. It may seem that we're being overcome by the world, but continue plowing in hope because we know that he has overcome the world. And one day, Christ will return and we will rule and reign with him in the ages to come. That is our destiny. Our ultimate destiny is hinted at in Ephesians 2, verses 6 and 7, when Paul says something wonderfully mysterious. Now, I can't take credit for this insight because Justin gave me this insight when we were talking about this a couple months ago. But in Ephesians 2, 6 and 7, Paul says something wonderfully mysterious. There we read that God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. There will be ages and ages and ages and ages to come in which God will continually be showing us the immeasurable riches of his grace. What does that even mean? Only God knows. But it sounds awesome. I love the direction we're headed. And I can't wait to arrive at that final destination point. Plow in hope. I'll leave you with this final thought. When Peter tells us that the earth will be burned up in the final judgment, some have argued that this fire is to be understood symbolically. That it will not be an actual fire that destroys the earth, rather it will act to purify the earth, to, to cleanse it of the effects of sin. And they go on to further argue that when it says in Revelation 21, verses 24 through 26, that the kings of the earth will bring their glory into the new Jerusalem, the glory and the honor of the nations, that this could be referring to the cultural treasures of mankind that are present now. Various works of art, works of technology, even a grand and majestic cultural icon such as the Golden Gate Bridge. Again, only God knows. I certainly wouldn't be dogmatic on this point. But it's a wonderful thought nonetheless. And at the very least, the skills and the talents that you've developed in this life, that knowledge, it will most certainly go with you into the next. It won't be lost. God isn't wasteful. We will continue to use our knowledge and our skill and our talents and servants in service to him in the world to come. And consider this. If we've been able to achieve space travel now in our fallen state, what is to prevent us in our glorified state where we will no longer be weakened or impeded by sin at all? What will prevent us from exploring the outermost regions of the universe? What will limit us from progressing on and on, learning and pursuing new and deeper aspects of God's creation to his glory and for our good? Nothing. Brethren, Use your sanctified imagination. Climb up to the top of Mount Zion in your mind and imagine the panoramic views that are possible. Our destiny, our chief end 
is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Set your hand to the plow and plow with hope into glory. Let's pray. Father, what a great Savior you have given us in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the reconciler of all things in heaven and in earth, the reconciler of our souls by his blood. And Lord, you have entrusted us to that ministry of reconciliation on his behalf. And so, Lord, help us to plant seeds and pull weeds, to be cultural makers and cultural takers, to be transformers and reformers. Lord, help us to set our hand to the plow and to plow in hope into glory until that day where we can fall at the feet of our Savior and say, thank you for reconciling me by your blood. It's in his name we pray.